Hello, and welcome to a flat pack history of Sweden, the English speaking podcast that takes you on a journey through Swedish history. You're Chris. And you're Orsa. This is episode 78, and today we're going to cover the same two year period we looked at in the last episode, namely 1423 to 1425. But today we're going to look at what Queen Philippa got up to when she was acting ruler of Sweden and the whole Kalmar Union during those years. Yes, because for those two years, or well, one year and nine months to be exact, King Eric went on a trip across Europe to get support from European rulers for his war against Holstein and to go on pilgrimage to the Holy Land. And well, generally just have a good time, it seems, which is what we spend the last episode talking about. But before we turn our attention to Philippa, as always, it's time for our Swedish phrase of the week. And this phrase came to our attention when we were watching the very popular Swedish quiz show Pusporat a few days ago. Pusporat, or On the Track in English, is a geography-based quiz show where two teams compete against each other as they journey to three different destinations, getting cryptic clues along the way to where they're going, and then getting points based on how quickly they get the right destination. When both teams know the destination, they also get questions based on that place. It might not sound like it when you explain the format, but it is great fun and very popular here, like you said. So last time we watched it, one of the destinations were Krakow, and we heard a phrase that you hadn't come across before in Swedish, Chris. Yes, it was the phrase en polsk riksdag, or a Polish parliament, as opposed to the Polish parliament, which is an actual phrase and a, a thing, the, the seat of power in Poland. Indeed, a Polish parliament, en polsk riksdag, is a phrase used to describe a chaotic situation, an unruly meeting or an assembly where nothing gets done. So you could say, for example... Oh, our weekly meeting at work turned into a Polsk Riksdag because no one could agree on what to do for our Christmas party and everyone started arguing over it. At first, this might seem terribly rude to Poland and the Poles. After all, it's not like meetings or gatherings in Poland are notably unruly or prone to arguments. But this phrase actually has a historical reason behind it. It originates from when the parliament in the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, the Sejem, practiced what was called liberum veto, or a free veto, from 1652 to 1791. This meant that every single member of parliament, who were all noblemen, had absolute veto power, meaning he could, in one move, throw out the entire parliamentary bill or whatever they were discussing and shut down the process. And it's not just that. If a member of parliament used this veto, it annulled the entire parliamentary session, which could have been going on for months, and all the decisions that had been made in that session, bringing the parliament back entirely to square one. And supposedly around one third of the parliaments in this roughly 200-year period were completely vetoed by various noblemen, meaning no business at all got done. The member of parliament invoked his veto right by shouting Nie pozwalam, which is Polish for I do not allow, and a phrase I might start using in the flat. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll see how welcome that is. Anyway, unsurprisingly, this veto right led to quite a lot of chaos and hindered an effective decision-making process in the Polish parliament. And so a Polish parliament became synonymous with a chaotic meeting that didn't lead to any decision-making back in neighbouring Sweden, and the phrase then stuck. 
Yeah, so it's not intentionally disrespectful to our Polish neighbours, who I'm sure nowadays has a parliament that's a little bit more uh, ruly and uh, you know, better governed than the one back in the day. And I hope especially that our listener Eva enjoyed this little bit of extra Polish content. Um, she actually posted a hilarious video about pronouncing Polish names on our Facebook page. So if you want a, a good laugh about Polish names, go uh, scroll back down our Facebook feed and, and find that video. Yeah, that was excellent. But before we go from Polish parliaments to see what Philippa was up to in the 1400s when she was ruling Sweden and the Kalmar Union by herself, we have to talk about a guest appearance we were on another podcast for. Yeah, it was great. We were on the Presidencies podcast, hosted by the brilliant Jerry Landry. He has his deep dive going through the presidencies of the United States. But on the side, he has a special series called Seat at the Table, where he spends just one episode looking at all the members of each of the cabinets. We got to talk about Caesar A. Rodney, Attorney General, way back when. First of all, a great name. And then also, Jerry had amazingly found a bit of a connection to Sweden with this person. So that made it even more relevant for us to talk about. So if you want to hear us talk about a man who served as Attorney General during Thomas Jefferson and James Madison's presidencies, listen to this. It was the most amazing fun. We spoke for nearly two hours about this man. It was an amazing amount of fun. Uh, So we'll be sharing it all over our social media, or we have done by now because it came out a couple of weeks ago. Um, But it was amazing, and do check it out and uh, give Jerry a listen. Definitely check it out and check out Presidencies. It's a really amazing, like Chris said, deep dive into the presidencies of the United States. And we'll put a link to that episode in the episode description here. So just scroll down and click on that and uh, give it a listen. And uh, we can't wait to hear who Jerry talks about next. But now back to 1423 and Queen Philippa. Yes, when we first met Queen Philippa in episode 74, she came over to Sweden from her native England as a young bride to marry King Eric, and she left behind her hilariously named horses. Since then, she's been a really active member of court in Scandinavia. Documents show that during her whole reign as queen, as both before, during and after Eric's absence, she was participating in state meetings and met with both the Danish and Swedish councils. Philippa had been given an extensive amount of lands, as we've mentioned a few times now, in particular in Sweden, to rule of as her own and to live off the income from them. So when Eric appoints Philippa as his regent or acting ruler when he goes off on his long trip, it's not like she's just been sitting in a castle tower for many years just doing some needlework and suddenly she's in charge of the Triple Kingdom. No, she's been a prominent figure in the Kalmar Union for quite some time now, and she's been doing a lot in Sweden. In fact, in 1422, the year before Eric leaves, she's had several posts and responsibilities up in Sweden. Exactly, and that's most likely why there doesn't seem to be any real opposition to her taking over the reins when Eric is gone. Unfortunately, there are no records preserved that highlights how she was named acting ruler, if there indeed was a specific process for it, or if Eric left any instructions for her on how to rule, although most historians think that's likely. Yeah, they must have at least had a chat. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, you'd think so. But like I said, we don't have any records of that. Uh, indeed, this whole episode is going to be one of those annoying ones where we keep saying we don't have any records of that. Because as Marie-Louise Flemberg points out in her book on Philippa, most of the national archives in the kingdoms of the Kalmar Union that would have held the state records from the period when Philippa was ruling, they have been ravaged by various fires. So for this whole period, it's a bit hit and miss in terms of what you actually have records of. Yeah, some events we know lots about because those records just happen to be preserved and some we know very little about because that particular document about that meeting or treaty has been lost to history and probably burnt. <laughs> yeah, but it's not like Philippa was left entirely alone when Eric was gone. Much like Eric himself when he was home and in charge, she had counsellors and advisors to assist and guide her. Now, we saw in the previous episode that Eric took some of his counsellors and close advisors with him on his trip, but there definitely were a lot of them left who would have been up to date on where things stood in various matters and able to help Philippa. And she would have known these people. After all, the circle of noblemen, counsellors and advisors wasn't that big in Scandinavia. In fact, it's likely she knew all noblemen and clergy in the three Kalmar Union kingdoms to some extent through meetings and councils and indeed personal friendship ties. And then Philippa had her own advisors, almost her own little mini court inside the main court to assist her. One advisor that she was particularly close with was the man who held the position of Queen's Counselor, so her personal advisor, and that was Thomas, the Bishop of Strangness. Philippa is 29 years old when she becomes the acting ruler of the Kalmar Union, at the time the largest state in Europe. Yeah, it's quite important to point out that she's now ruling an area stretching from Greenland to St. Petersburg. Perhaps not what we think about when we think of medieval women. Of course, Philippa is queen and not representative of average gender roles and opportunity for women, but it still goes to show that perhaps the image we have of medieval Europe, of it being just the king and knights and the odd damsel in distress, is not the whole picture. Definitely. And it's interesting to see that surprisingly little fuss seems to have been made over the fact that she is a woman. It's not really mentioned in any of the sources. It's not like the councils in Sweden and Norway and Denmark all went, What? A lady is going to rule us now? No! Yeah, and obviously the listeners are screaming right now. It's like, well, duh, because they've just had decades of Margareta ruling. And, and that seems to be a big tick in Philippa's favour. Because, yeah, Margareta has been such a prominent figure for decades in ruling Scandinavia and is still easily within living memory for people and would have worked with the majority of these councillors and things. So they certainly are used to taking orders and instructions from a woman. So it's much easier for them to accept than if it had been a hundred years previously. Yeah, Philippa very much has the advantage of being able to stand on the shoulders of Margareta in her position. Nonetheless, it might be a big kingdom, or rather union of kingdoms, that Philippa takes over, but it's in pretty poor state. This is a period that is marked by the unresolved border conflict over Schleswig with Holstein, unrest in the population in all three kingdoms over the increased tax burden, 
and a very poor monetary situation. Yeah, it's not a land of flowing milk and honey that gets handed over to her. So let's take a look at some of these problems and start with money. In these early days, there wasn't a unified monetary system in the Kalmar Union. Different coins, both foreign and domestic, were used in, in different ways. As you can imagine, this created problems. People didn't trust the system sometimes, and it was unclear how much any given item was worth and what the currencies were worth when compared to each other. The situation was a nightmare for trade, and after all, you want to know how much something is worth and what you should pay with when you turn up to somewhere with your herring. And who likes trade? Well, obviously, the Hansa like trade, and they're deeply annoyed by this lack of unity in monetary systems when trying to trade with areas in the Kalmar Union. In fact, they weren't just annoyed, but they were actually vocally criticising the Kalmar Union for this. Eric had then gone ahead and made things worse because he was running the state finances into the ground with his constant fighting with Holstein. And then he started making silver coins from copper, a much lower rate value, but gave them the same value monetarily. This further decreased both the actual value of the coin and the trust in the system. And the problem with the money and trade was a particular issue in Sweden, because Sweden had such a comparatively large and profitable mining system. And this is coming into the story in a big way now, and will do for the next couple of episodes. And the stuff that was mined wasn't always useful in itself, in the sense that it could only really be used for trade. A piece of fur or a herring you can either just eat or wear yourself if you can't sell it. But a piece of iron ore literally doesn't really have much use unless you're able to sell it on or make something from it. But Sweden has a lot of iron ore compared to its population, so it was able to provide for itself. And then there was just a big pile of iron ore waiting on the side, waiting for someone to come and buy. So you can't really do much with that apart from make a slide or something. Yeah, and Sweden didn't have much of a production industry. The whole system rested on it being mined here and taken out of the ground and then sold off to places on the continent that did have that production capacity. Yeah, there was the odd place where you could do a bit and pieces, but yeah, the mass production to produce things for the whole country was, was actually done elsewhere. A lot like um, stuff is done today, you know, we don't make all of our watermelons in Sweden. We bring them in elsewhere, I'm guessing. I don't know, I was just spontaneously picking one thing. Do they grow watermelons in Sweden? Maybe they do. Uh, also, I like that you used as an example for production a food item that com uh, comes out of the ground. You don't uh, need to refine watermelons. No, but it was during the pandemic, wasn't it? What were the three things that Sweden are self-sufficient for? Ooh, uh, it was uh, toilet up. paper, carrots, and onions, I think. Yeah. yeah. Everything else to get up to 100%, Sweden needs to import those things. Yeah, I mean, I think watermelons will be the first to go. It's not really a, a favourable climate here. No, and certainly not back, back in the 1400s. Should we... When was the first watermelon brought to Sweden? I'm going to Google this. Also, talk to the listeners. Oh, dear listeners, you now get an insight into what my life looks like. When... What, what's watermelon? Is it vattenmelon or... Vattenmelon, yeah. yeah. So it was basically in the 1960s. Yeah. 
Now, bring us back from watermelons in the 1960s to mining in Sweden in the 1400s, please. Yeah, um, talking about these miners, um, it was the miners, and in particular the wealthy Bersmen, who owned the mines in Sweden. And they needed and wanted to sell it on to foreign traders. And these were mainly Germans from the Hansa states that then took it over to the continent, refined it, made pots and cannons and knives and whatever they did with it, and then actually, yeah, brought some of them back to Sweden. Appreciating the plight of the Swedish Bersman, and just in general acknowledging that the situation was untenable, Philippa decided that something needed to be done. She most likely also knew that the fact that Erik was absent was a benefit to solving this situation, since his relation to the Hansa was quite fraught. They were more likely to agree to things in a meeting chaired by her. So that's exactly what she does. She calls a meeting in Copenhagen in October 1424 with all the parties involved, including the Hansa. Before the meeting, she has several pre-meetings with the councils of the Kalmar Union kingdoms, so she makes sure that they're all on the same page. At the meeting, it's decided they're going to start afresh. New coins are going to be made for the Kalmar Union, which are all going to be worth the same, and their value will be tied to the value of the Lübeck coins, which had been the case during Margareta's reign. Easy as pie. Agreement signed on the 8th of October by representatives from all of the Scandinavian councils and the Hansa cities of Lübeck, Hamburg, Lüneburg and Wismar. The cities of Rostock, Stralsund and Griefswald would join the agreement a year later. Actually, in the preamble to the agreement, there's an interesting line that illustrates Philippa's position. It specifically says that Queen Philippa has the same power and authority to reach any binding agreement as would King Erik. Yeah, so it's not like this is an intermediary thing to just sort it out for a short while whilst Eric's away, but this is seen as a permanent solution. Some historians have seen the monetary agreement as a means to appease the Hansa and ensure trade, but they also agree that it was the best thing to be done for the Kalmar Union, since the situation with different coins and different values was becoming a bit, well, ridiculous and detrimental. Sadly, it won't last. Slight spoiler, but the year after Eric comes back, the monetary agreement is thrown out the window, for reasons we will get to then. But it's just so annoying. Philippa really does the sensible thing here. She sits everyone down, she starts afresh, everyone agrees, and then it doesn't last. But it's, it's a good thing for the short term, at least. Another thing that famously doesn't last is any agreement to resolve the conflict with Holstein. We saw in the previous episode that one of Eric's main aims with his trip to the European mainland is to see his cousin, the leader of the Holy Roman Empire, Sigismund, and get him to declare a final and favourable verdict on the Schleswig matter. And he does this after some lengthy deliberation and assistance from two Italian lawyers in June 1424. And that's when it's declared that Schleswig belongs to Denmark. This is, of course, a huge victory for Erik, and he describes it as the happiest moment in his life. But Holstein, on the other hand, are 
unsurprisingly, not happy and not willing to accept this. The Holstein dukes immediately contact the Pope to make him annul the decision, and they start working on all other German kingdoms to make sure they're on their side. So this positive verdict can quickly slip out of Eric's hands if Holstein is successful in this. But Eric isn't able to deal with any of this really because, as we know, he's off in the Holy Land. And even if he wanted to, the distance and lack of connection with Europe from there could mean that he basically would be so out of date any decisions he made would be out of date by the time they got back too. So dealing with this falls on Philippa. Yes, when she hears the Holsteins' plans to have the Pope annul the ruling, she knows she has to make a counter-move. So she sits down at her desk and writes two letters. The first is a supplique, a special kind of humble request. She writes this in Eric's name, not to the Pope himself, but to one of his cardinals. The supplique urges the cardinal to help the Pope see that he should not let his scythe enter another man's field, which sounds... Amazing. (laughs) Sounds a bit raunchy to me, but anyway, the meaning is that the Pope shouldn't get involved in non-religious matters, and since the Schleswig conflict was not a religious matter, the Holstein Duke's request to have the Pope annul it would be void, since it wasn't his business to deal with in the first place. The supplique is dated the 20th of October, and to give it extra weight is witnessed by many high-ranking bishops in the Kalmar Union. The second letter Philippa writes to try and counter Holstein's move is an open letter from her and the councils of all the three Kalmar Union kingdoms to the councils of Lübeck and Wiesmar, pleading with them not to get on board with Holstein's move to turn the German kingdoms against Eric, but instead support Scandinavia. In the end, none of these actions matter, because on the 16th of May 1425, the Pope does annul the ruling on Schleswig and the conflict is back on. As soon as Philippa hears of this, she orders copies to be made of all matters related to the conflict, most likely in preparation for renewed hostilities. But by then, Eric is back from his journey and left to deal with the conflict himself once again. We've now looked at two important issues that Philippa acts on during her time as ruler, the monetary problem and the response to Holstein. But there was, of course, a lot of day-to-day ruling, if we call it that, for Philippa to get up to. Yes, and like all medieval rulers, she had to travel around to be able to exert any effective power and do any decision-making. She travels around Sweden and Denmark a lot, but doesn't go to Norway during her time as acting ruler. Perhaps because it was simply too far away, or it might have been seen as the slightly less important one of the three in terms of power, status and population. When she stays in one place for any length of time, Philippa often stays in the Öresund region, mainly in Copenhagen or Helsingborg, which makes sense since that is sort of the centre of the heartland of the Kalmar Union, close to both Sweden, the rest of Denmark, and the most populated areas in Norway, which are in the south. Yeah, there's at least eight people living there at (laughs) this point. (laughs) Yeah. 
Now, records from Philippa's time as a ruler are piecemeal, but they do show that she did a bit of everything that a Scandinavian ruler got up to. She chaired council meetings, presided over court meetings and legal meetings and trials, lots of meetings, um, <laughs> settling legal conflicts and inheritance disputes. She answered complaints from various local areas of her kingdoms, and she was involved in church affairs too, in particular in Vardstena, which seems to have been a favourite spot of hers. The legal meetings, the presiding over trials and making rulings that you mentioned, they were an important aspect of being a medieval ruler. The legal system was quite different from what we have today, and the monarch was very much involved in legal matters, and not just the creation of laws and regulations, but the actual implementation. Medieval rulers often presided over cases acting a bit like a judge. Passing judgment in legal matters and being the one making the final decision in a trial, that was seen as the same thing as having the overall power in the kingdom. Of course, the ruler didn't judge in all trials everywhere for practical reasons, but in cases of higher profile and importance, the ruler was called upon to be the judge. These larger and more far-reaching disputes were even settled in the council meetings themselves, a bit like if the government today ruled on specific cases rather than the courts doing it. Yeah, there wasn't much separation of the three branches of government yet in medieval Sweden. Sometimes the ruler even handed down judgment in relatively small and personal disputes if they were important to his or her rule. To be able to do this effectively, like Orsa said, Philippa had to travel around. Participating in trials and passing judgment wasn't new to Philippa. It was something she'd done throughout her reign as queen, and especially in Sweden, and she would continue to do this even when Eric comes back. In the Kalmar Union, each kingdom had its own laws, both a landslog, which was in place for the whole kingdom, and laws for the individual county. This is a bit like some countries today have local or state laws and then federal laws. In Denmark, just to confuse things, there were also separate landslagar, so the federal type laws, for Skåne, Jylland and Sjælland or Jutland and Zealand, as they're called in English. The church then had its own legal system, which included a lot of what we today consider both civil and criminal law. For example, what we would call sex crimes were usually judged within the church's legal system, because they had kind of the moral matters, uh, they were in charge of that. In this system, the bishops were the judges, and ultimately the Pope was the supreme judge. One example of a legal matter that Philippa was in charge of, and that we do have records from, was when she was in Stockholm in the spring of 1425 to pass judgment in several trials along with the acting Swedish Archbishop. One case she'd ruled over was a dispute that her own chancellor and close advisor Bishop Thomas had had with two herads or areas in his bishopric. Unfortunately, we couldn't find any details of this case or the final ruling, so we don't really know if uh, Philippa took the side of her advisor or not, but she probably did. <laughs> yeah, maybe. But we do know that this was the one and only time she visited Stockholm. 
Interesting, considering how she was in Sweden a lot in general, but just didn't really seem to prioritise Stockholm. Whilst being ruler, Philippa also had to deal with a steady stream of letters landing on her desk. These concerned pretty much anything from the people in the kingdom and what they considered important for the queen to know or wanted her thoughts or decisions on. In general, the line between ruler and population was much more direct in medieval Sweden than it is today. Not in the sense that any lowly farmhand could wander up to the king or queen, definitely not, but in the sense that there wasn't the same system of government between subject and king. Yes, there were local authorities in the form of village councils and bailiffs and commanders of various castles, and there were church authorities in the forms of bishops and so on, but there was no direct and absolute power for the whole kingdom other than the king or queen. This meant that they would deal with matters and hear complaints that later rulers wouldn't be involved in or have to deal with. And we've got several examples of this from Philippa's reign, and we thought we'd touch on a few now to highlight what she could have been getting up to. In 1424, the farmers on Erland write to Philippa, pleading to not have to pay their taxes in money, but rather in goods, which is a traditional Swedish way of doing things. Erland is largely a farming community, so you can see why they would struggle to convert their assets into actual cash, especially when there's not much trade going on with abroad, and they would much rather give the crown stuff instead. But Philippa doesn't grant this. We're not sure why she doesn't state a reason, but historians speculate it might be because Eric instructed her to keep that vital cash flow to the crown's coffers coming in because he's spending so much on wars and travels. And this conflict over paying tax in cash or stuff is going to become even more important in Swedish history very, very soon. Now, we mentioned earlier that Philippa never goes to Norway during her time as acting ruler, but she is involved in local matters there through letters and correspondence. During 1424, she corresponds with several local areas in Norway after they've written to her saying that they can no longer keep up with the royal order to have ships ready to become part of a royal fleet or maintain the standing network of transportation with boats and horses and wagons that they're meant to should the royals and their courts come to visit. These letters are seen as indicative of the Norwegians suffering under the burden of royal obligations and taxes and the resulting growing displeasure. In this matter, Philippa doesn't seem to really do anything actively. Basically, she's just kicking the can down the line in terms of unhappiness with the rulers. One Norwegian matter that she does deal with, albeit a bit lukewarmly, is when the locals in Bergen write to her in 1425 complaining about smuggling and unregulated trading that's harming their income and trade and asks for her help. In response, Philippa writes a royal proclamation that's to be read out in Bergen, reminding everyone of the trade rules in place and stating that unregulated trade is not allowed in the town's harbour. Which, to be honest, yeah, it is a response, but it's sort of just saying to people, hey guys, remember the rules. It's unlikely that the people conducting the unregulated trade would just say, oh yeah, sorry, we forgot about that. Like, uh, thanks for telling us, Queenie. We'll, we'll be back on board now. Yeah. I mean, perhaps she just didn't fancy actually going to Bergen and brushed the whole thing off as quickly as she could. 
Also in 1425, Philippa receives a letter from one of the most far-off areas of her kingdoms, namely from Orkney. It's written by a group of locals there who wish to inform the Queen of the ongoing fighting between the Jarl, yes, they still have that position on Orkney, even though it's been dropped in Norway, Sweden and Denmark, but they have a Jarl and he's fighting with the bishops. The conflict is understandably affecting the locals negatively and they ask the queen to pray for them but also to allow them to appoint a new jarl, one that is native to Orkney and not a Scotsman, albeit of Norwegian descent, like the current one. The locals are hoping that a native Orkney jarl would relieve the tensions between the jarldom and the bishops. Unfortunately, we don't know how this is resolved, because not long after Philippa receives this letter, Eric comes home and Philippa's time as acting ruler is over. Oh, I felt like it went by really quickly. Yeah. Uh, it's a shame so many of the letters were burnt. Although she's had time to do a lot, both in the day-to-day business and in the terms of the bigger decision-making process, so it's not all been uh, lost to history. Historians tend to view her time as ruler as a success. After all, there was unbroken peace and at least partial financial stabilisation, which for a medieval Scandinavian ruler is no small achievement. Perhaps another sign of her successful rule, and one seen in her own time, was the increased popularity of the name Philippa. Before she became queen, it's largely unheard of in Scandinavia. But especially after her time as acting ruler, we see noblemen across the Kalmar Union naming their daughters Philippa, or I suppose they'd pronounce it Philippa because it's still a name here. And they likely wouldn't have done that if they thought she was terrible. The increase in the use of the name Philippa is seen as her being viewed favourably in her own time. Like we've mentioned, Philippa has been involved in state matters and things like that before Eric left, and she's definitely going to continue doing so once she's back. And uh, because she spent a load of time in Sweden during this regency and before, Eric's sort of going to start promoting her as his woman in Sweden, and we'll see her a lot more in the Swedish story. And in this, she's going to pass down verdicts in at least two cases, one on taxation in Erland and one about what to do with the loot from a shipwreck on Gotland. They send it back to Reval, where it came from in Estonia, in 1425, after Eric comes back. And to some extent, it does seem like Eric and Philippa almost split their kingdoms between them from this point, with Eric being more in charge in Denmark whilst Philippa taking care of Sweden. In fact, from October 1421 to after Philippa's death, Eric's not recorded as being in Sweden at any point, which is quite amazing considering what's going to happen later in the story. In a way, it makes sense, though, because we talked about how medieval rulers had to travel around and be physically present in various parts of their kingdom to assert any power. And since the Kalmarjuna was so large geographically, it made sense for them to split up and cover more ground by travelling around separately. So, yeah, Philippa basically gets Sweden. Noting this division of responsibilities, Marie-Louise Flemberg even goes as far as arguing that Philippa was Eric's co-ruler, But while there might be some elements of co-rule in practice, there was no co-ruling or dual monarchy ever expressed officially or legally in the Kalmar Union or any of the constituent kingdoms. Yeah, and this isn't really anything that other 
historians go on with. I think just uh, Marie-Louise Feinberg likes Philippa a lot, so she's leaning more on that side. Well, she did write a whole book about her, so... <laughs> so now Eric is back, Philippa is back to being just queen of the whole Kalmar Union, even though she's especially involved in Swedish matters. And after all, being queen wasn't such a limited position after all, at least not in her case. Yeah, because we've seen that she did stuff before Eric left, before she got this regency, and she was still getting involved then. So it's, yeah, back to normal for the Kalmar Union, but with this extra bit of a job to do in Sweden. But yes, Eric is now back, and he's got a problem, or he's technically got the same problem he's always had, and that's with Holstein over Schleswig. And that's what we'll talk about in the next episode, because the renewed war at the southern border will set the stage for many of the political issues that will influence Sweden and the Kalmar Union for the coming decades. Yeah, it'll be interesting. But for now, we'll conclude by saying thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you have, then please leave a review on whatever platform you listen to us on that would be wonderful we love hearing from you indeed and you can follow us on facebook and twitter to see pictures about all our travels we recently went to sigtuna and gamla Uppsala. well recently when this comes out is now probably a month or so ago but yeah there's some pictures on there and you can send us videos about polish pronunciation of names if you feel like it or whatever you want to on our social media or you can email us at flatpackhistorysweden at gmail.com or check out our website for new family trees and an updated source and queen's list and king's list and all that kind of stuff on aflatpackhistoryofsweden.com. Um, if you don't do any of those things, you'll just hear from us in two weeks' time. Yes. Bye for now. Hey, Dor.